Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. This podcast is being recorded as part of the 40th Critical Care Congress here in San Diego, California. My guest today is Kathleen A. Puntillo, RNDNSC. She's a professor emeritus of nursing at the University of California, San Francisco School of Nursing in San Francisco, California. We're going to be discussing an article that was recently published in Critical Care Medicine, the title of which is Symptoms Experienced by Intensive Care Unit Patients at High Risk of Dying. The reference is Critical Care Medicine, 2010, Volume 38, Number 11, pages 2155 to 2160. Thank you so much, Kathleen, for being part of the podcast today. Well, thank you for inviting me. This was an absolutely fascinating study, and it really is, when I was reading it, very different from anything else I'd seen before. And you're asking questions that I hadn't seen asked before about symptoms of, of patients uh, that it was sort of very, it was a little confusing when I first read it. And uh, letting it settle in uh, is sort of making me rethink how I'm looking at my critically ill patients. So I was wondering if you could maybe start by telling us a little bit about your background at UCSF. Oh, surely. I've been at uh, UCSF in the School of Nursing as professor of nursing for over 16 years now. Uh, Originally, I was the director of the critical care trauma graduate program until very recently and uh, developed and continued my research program. My primary research program has been on pain in the critically ill. How can we assess patients' pain? Uh, What types of pain uh, do our patients experience? Uh, My research has emphasized the experience of and treatment for procedural pain. And in the uh, growth of our understanding of the need for palliative care in ICU, My program of research fit well under palliation because, of course, that's what palliation is, providing comfort. From my pain program, I began to take a wider view of experiences of patients that might provide them discomfort, and that's what led me into a study, this study that we're talking about, of uh, several symptoms of patients in ICU. And before we get into the details, uh, some big picture questions I had for you were, why did you choose um, high patients at high risk of dying rather than just every anybody who was mechanically ventilated? Well, that's a very good question, because as we clinicians know, uh, a person, a patient doesn't have to be at high risk of dying to be having the symptoms that we looked at and probably several others that haven't been looked at. Uh, however, uh, we felt that within the palliative care world and context that we would start with patients who were at high risk of dying because all of us want the death of a patient to be as comfortable for them as possible and the memories of their deaths for family members to be as positive as could be under the circumstances. And how, how was the determination made that they would be someone that you would put in the category of high risk of death? Well, we use certain criteria for that based on prior research and our own research. And the first was an Apache score of 20 or greater. Um, 
and that actually does suggest that the p- a person would be at high risk. We also said that they ha- needed to be in the ICU for three days or greater. Again, that is a potential indicator of high risk and a suggestion that they might not survive their ICU stay. And um, I was going to then ask you, um, and moving on to, I guess, sort of table one, where you focused in on looking at these various symptoms. And maybe if you could take a few minutes to talk about how you decided which of these symptoms you were going to look at and the way you quantitated the severity of the symptoms. Yes. So um, we can't even imagine the types of symptoms patients have because in ICU, as we all know, uh, there is such a difficulty for patients to report or to communicate with us. So I actually went to the cancer world and looked at symptoms of patients with cancer and other life-threatening diseases report and the degree of their uh, bothersomeness or intensity or distress. I also based my work on the first and I think the only report of ICU patient symptoms that was done by Dr. Judith Nelson and um, compiled our list of symptoms uh, based upon those activities. And, and again, going into to table one, and I'm, I'm just going to read in for the listeners the, the kinds of things you looked at. and uh, So being tired, being thirsty, being anxious, being restless, hungry, uh, dyspnea, being short of breath, pain, being sad, scared, and confused. And it, and it seems like from your paper, and again, correct me if I got it wrong, but so all of them were assessed as either mild, moderate, or severe, one, two, three. Is that correct? Yes. What we did was ask the patient first if they were having any of the symptoms. So we went through the list and asked them to tell us yes or no. If they did say yes, they were having a particular symptom, then we went back to it and asked them to rate both the intensity and the distress on a scale of one to three, which would be mild to uh, strong. And uh, were, were they all intubated? No. You did? Okay. Uh, uh, the study had, uh, we enrolled 245 patients in the study. Uh, this was one uh, part of a larger study. And we found that only 171 of the 245 patients were able to report to us. And of those able to report, a little over a third of them were on the ventilators at the time of uh, our symptom assessments. And so in terms of them uh, telling you the severity or whether or not they had it, it was, would they like hold up a finger or just nod or would you ask them, how how would you do that? Well, we used a laminated, large laminated card uh, on which we put uh, one equals mild, two equals moderate, three equals severe for both intensity and distress. So we held that up close to them so that they would be able to point to one of those If the patient wasn't able to do that, uh, we used other methods like asking them to shake their head if it was mild or if it was moderate or severe. Um, And were you comfortable personally, and I know we talked about this before, in terms of the validity in patients who may be intubated about getting the, I guess, the consistency or the uh, repeatability of the results? Yes, we were comfortable based upon what we did in the study. The first thing that we did was assess their level of sedation to see their degree of alertness, uh, which would be one indicator of their ability to communicate with validity. The second thing that we did was to do actually an assessment of their uh, whether they had delirium or not using the CAM-ICU scale. 
And so with those methods, we felt like we were getting uh, as valid information as we could. We also, after the study was over, looked at uh, the, the variance, if you will, on how patients reported symptoms. Did they, for example, did in a particular patient always give three to every symptom, or could they make adjustments um, you know, a- across our scale? And then just going over the results of Table 1, which I find incredibly fascinating here, is you focus in on the prevalence of symptoms across 405 assessments from 171 patients. And as you succinctly have said in your discussion, in greater than 50% of symptom assessments, patients reported the presence of being tired, thirsty, and anxious. And and just to read it in for the listeners, they were tired uh, 74.7% of the time, thirsty 71% of the time, and anxious 60% of the time. So if you'd like to comment, that would be, that'd be great. Yes. Uh, in some respects, our findings were a surprise to us. Uh, not too surprising that three-quarters of the patients reported that they were tired because we know what an ICU environment is like for patients and how their sleep is so disrupted, interrupted, and uh, the effort that they go through in um, just staying alive when they're in the ICU. However, we were quite surprised about the uh, the prevalence of thirst. Really, um, few people have ever looked at this symptom, and to find in our study that 71% of patients reported that they were thirsty was a surprise. The prevalence of anxiety was less than a surprise because one can assume, although it hadn't been documented very well previously, that a patient in an ICU has many reasons to be anxious. And and, and again, just following up on what you said before on Table 2, that the intensity of the thirst, again, rating things as a one, two, or three, mild, moderate, uh, severe. The thirst was 2.16 and was clearly the most intense symptom that they reported. Yes, another surprise. It's a very intense symptom for many, many patients. And then you, uh, in table three, you wrote mean distress rating. So the concept is how much does this bother you? And you focused in there that the four symptoms that were moderately distressful were uh, shortness of breath, dyspnea, uh, being scared, being confused, and having pain. And again, if you'd like to comment. Yeah, so I think it's important for us to understand that there are many components to a symptom. And how intense a symptom is, is one thing. But a symptom that is intense doesn't necessarily have to provide or cause as much distress in patients. So it's really important to look at both of those aspects. And uh, and we found that for some of the symptoms that may have been less prevalent, when we asked them how distressful they were, they were distressful to them. Um, and again, you, you focus later in on the study that the vast majority reported being tired. And then one of our talking points was an unexpected finding around pain, uh, if you'd like to comment on that. Yes. uh, We found that uh, 40% of our reporting patients reported that they were having pain. But when they did report they were having pain, when we asked them how distressful it was, as you said, Richard, it was one of the the most distressful symptoms for them. So again, here's here's a situation where if it's present, Uh, it can be quite distressful. I found 
it interesting when we first looked at the fact that it was only 40% of patients who reported having pain and provide, kind of put that in the context of what we have been doing about pain in ICU patients over the past, I would say, 15, 20 years. 20 years ago, when I started um, my own work in pain in critically ill patients, we knew very little about pain. And fortunately, we now know more about it and are doing more to help alleviate the pain of patients in ICU. But I think there is a caveat to this finding, and that is, remember, once again, um, a number of patients weren't able to self-report for various reasons. And so they are not part of this survey. So we really don't know in many patients, particularly those who can't self-report, uh, whether pain is present and the extent of their pain, which leads to a need for the work that is ongoing about um, developing valid and reliable pain behavior scales. So again, I've, I've been doing a lot of I've tried to prep for this, and, and what I like about your your study is you're sort of pulling back the curtain and saying to somebody like me, look what you're not doing. Look, mm-hmm. look what you're not assessing. And then, so the question, as it should be to somebody like me, is, okay, well, how, how can I fix this? And so questions I would ask back to would be, so uh, we're all, and I don't know that this was in the study, but say, well, we're all the patients that were thirsty, hypernatremic, and we were missing treating hypernatremia or something like that. Well, that's a very good question. So first, we identified uh, that so many patients were thirsty. So the next question is, well, why are they thirsty? If a person complains of pain, we can usually, not always, identify why they're having pain. They have a sternal incision. They had a chest tube removed. So we can put kind of uh, two and two together. But this question about thirst actually was quite intriguing. Um, Well, why are so many people thirsty? And that actually led us to a study that we are conducting now about thirst. And it is a randomized clinical trial. We're testing an intervention for thirst. It is blinded, and so the primary aim is to answer the question, does our intervention alleviate patients' thirst? But the second aim of that study gets to your question, Richard, and that is, well, why are they thirsty? So we're actually uh, collecting data about, uh, many data about the patient's condition, about what medications they're receiving, what their electrolyte status is, and so forth in order to try to identify significant predictors of thirst. Because um, it's it's absolutely fascinating because I would say, well, this is one of my neurosurgery patients and I'm giving them five different drugs that are trying to get fluid out of their brain. And it's not that I don't care that they're thirsty, but I have to do what I can to preserve their brain. And if they're thirsty for a couple of days, so be it kind of thing. But your point is there may be lots of patients where we may not be actively doing anything that should be doing it and we might as well alleviate their symptoms, right? Yes, and even in your situation, that's your explanation there about the neuropatient, completely understandable. But if we find an intervention for thirst that doesn't interrupt their treatment, then then we can implement that intervention. So it doesn't have to be an either or. It doesn't right? have to be an either or. And then I had similar thoughts about the anxiety and dyspnea. So, and again, I've seen some other work on dyspnea, and I find that confusing because 
sort of by definition, I know that many of my patients are going to be dysthmic, and I'm going to do what I can to alleviate that. That's why they had to get intubated in the first place. Um, what if my patient is anxious and dysthmic because I'm doing their daily spontaneous breathing trial and daily sedation vacation, and I need to have them awake and alert to assess if I can take them off the breathing machine, and they're dysthmic, so I have to resedate them. It's And then the anxiety component, I'm also trying to be a good intensivist and say, well, I can treat their anxiety with benzodiazepines, but that may be associated with increased delirium, so I may be alleviating a symptom or masking a symptom and maybe worsening their outcome. These are complex issues, right? They certainly are, and it really brings up the challenge of providers in critical care to try to provide the, the best care for the patient's condition and balancing that with providing comfort for the patient. So it is a balance, it, and I contend that it might not have to be either or, and that's the whole point about trying to understand the experiences of the patient so that we can then say, well, yes, we're going to have a wake-up trial, we don't want, or we don't want to give them a benzo, but isn't there something else, or aren't there other interventions that we can do knowing that? And of course, that would lead us into a discussion of non-pharmacologic interventions that perhaps could be tried and are tried during times when the pharmacology might not be the best all right, that's exactly Choice. what I was going to discuss. I went to some lecture earlier yesterday fo focusing in on, I would imagine for both things like anxiety and being tired of, of non-pharmacologic interventions to provide a structured environment for the patient, you know, allowing or, or doing more to allow sleep at night, keeping a sleep-wake cycle present, right? Yes, yes. Those kinds of things. And uh, you are, with that statement, you are reminding me of another thought that we've had, and that is, are there other people that can help us provide comfort to that patient while they're in the intensive care unit? And certainly, in addition to providers doing what they can do, uh, we happen to believe that we can recruit family members to help us make the uh, critically ill patients' um, comfort better by using them. And we could consider using families to help them decrease their anxiety, to uh, decrease their confusion, to um, perhaps even decrease their pain using non-pharmacologic measures that are instituted by the family member who was trained and prepared to do that. Well, we're sort of uh, winding things up. I, I wanted to give you an opportunity to make some sort of concluding statements about uh, where your research has been, where it's taken you, and uh, where you think it's going uh, over the next uh, foreseeable future. Well, thank you for asking that. And my first thought is how incredibly fortunate I have been to be doing this type of program of research for uh, patients in critical care. My whole clinical life has been in intensive care, and I've always seen ICU patients and their families as so vulnerable and so in need of our help at many different levels, the physiology, the psychology, the emotion, and so forth. And so through this program of research, I've hope I've opened doors um, or increased the levels of consciousness of uh, clinicians in the ICU to have them ask these questions, 
at times when we didn't think the patient would be able to answer, but to probe and move forward to find out what indeed these experiences are. Because in, until we know what the experiences are, we're probably not going to do anything about it. And that that's not uh, appropriate. We have to keep moving to provide comfort to these critically ill patients. Well, again, um, this is obviously a very, very difficult study to perform. I'm really glad you took some time out of your schedule to be with us. It seems to me, uh, both speaking with you and reading this paper over carefully, the good news is that we are aware as a critical care community of pain. We need to be better at it, and we are good at trying to treat it, although it remains a distressful, concerning factor for patients. The new surprising news is there are these other important symptoms that patients have of thirst, anxiety, and dyspnea that we need to aggressively tease apart, find out how much of it may be treatable easily, and uh, figure out if we can continue to treat the primary uh, physiologic abnormalities the patient may have, and yet not let them have these uh, bad symptoms going on in the background that we're ignoring and not even aware many times that they have. You've said it beautifully. We've been speaking today with Kathleen A. Puntillo, R-N-D-N-S-C-F-A-A-N. She is a professor emeritus at the University of California, San Francisco School of Nursing, and she's joining us here today as part of the iCritical Care podcast. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information as well as over five years of archived podcasts. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Members receive discounts on all SCCM educational programs and resources. Please ask to speak to a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership. For more information, the iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the medical co-director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City, practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org. Dot org.